Oh my fucking god! I had my microphone off. I had my it microphone off. It was off meant to be. You did the same right thing now. I did, Jr. So all, all the all the all the cat shit, all the all my brilliant bringing it back to Tim and Tom, fucking gone. So basically, up until this point, <laughs> for two we're two hours into recording. Well, no, I asked I asked Kyle I asked Kyle what uh. he thought about it. And then I turned off my microphone because I figured he'd have a lot to say. And and then fucking Nemo. Right. So Ken, is your is your law firm suing? So, like we've got a we've got a lot for the cold open. I think. <laughs> yeah. Regardless. Yeah, the cold open. Okay. Somebody's like somebody. Somebody's like digging through a pack of Oreos. Because uh, uh, it looks it looks like we're gonna have to um, go back in time and properly initialize your microphone for the first hour of the show, Jeff. Do we have any volunteers? I don't know. Where'd the cheese go? I don't know. I don't know. Where'd the cheese go? I don't know. Where'd the cheese go? I don't know. All right, so we will move on to Jerry Horn. Um, I'm going to leave it to you, Kyle. You had a lot to say about this. Section. Yeah, this this was the first really really good section for me that I thought had a lot of uh, a lot of fascinating detail to it. I mean, we we see on page 39 uh, that Jerry Horn is tied to Dr. Jacoby, who of course proves to be hugely important later. Uh, as friend of the show, John Bernardi noted in an article at the 25 Years Later site, Jerry used sound waves to alter the geographic features of reality on page 39, uh, which seems to matter a great deal in a world full of electrical crackling and hidden humming and chopped and screwed music being played backwards. Uh, there's an aside about him being conversationally adept in four languages, um, which creates a wholly unexpected... Hang, hang on just a second, guys. Susan, can you come here, please? I apologize, guys. Uh, Nemo has gotten in. Thank you. Yeah. I, I was hoping I she apologize. was going to come say something in four languages. I, I apologize. Just Nemo like Bob? A brief aside here. Um, the... No. The... the uh, I'll give the short version of this. The neighbors, as I gather it, uh, the husband and wife, when they got married, the wife brought the cat into the marriage. They had a child, and then the wife, uh, they divorced. The wife left. When the wife left, uh, although she was the one who owned the cat, the kid stayed with the husband here in our neighborhood, and since the kid had grown up with the cat, the cat was left with the kid and the adult who didn't care for the cat. So the cat now kind of wanders around and lives on my front porch. We can't actually have the cat in the house because I'm allergic to cats, but my daughter loves the cat and it's freezing here. So we've uh, taken to leaving the garage door cracked uh, so that the cat can get inside and not be out in the freezing cold. But apparently when Susan went out to throw something away, she left the kitchen door open. And as I was sitting here talking, I saw a cat start walking uh through my kitchen and i kind of needed that dealt with so sorry (laughs) all right so there's an aside on page 37 that says that jerry is conversationally adept in four language which is just a 
really peculiar, really specific detail, and it, it creates this highly unexpected but really pointed juxtaposition with Gersten Hayward, who is able to speak and read four languages fluently, according to page 27. And and that's just so odd to me that you've got four languages, really, the ability to speak four languages. we got these two characters, never supposed this about them, but now we've got these two linked. We've got Jerry associated with the Merry Pranksters uh, of Ken Kesey, who, of course, were immortalized in the book The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which was written by Tom Wolfe, whose namesake was Thomas Wolfe, who wrote You Can't Go Home Again, which is basically the organizing theme of both the text and the subtext of Twin Peaks The Return, which may make this the most meta-illusion in a show full of meta-illusions. Jerry's also connected to Neil Young, which couldn't help but remind me of Ben Horn's Confederate interlude in Season 2, which may or may not have happened, because we hope we'll, Neil Young will remember that the Southern man don't need him around anyhow. And then finally, one of Jerry's hash-slinging web domains is upupandaway.com, which is, of course, a reference to Superman, an alien who lived among us hidden as a human being. And this latest superhero comics linkage helps highlight how inexplicably weird it is that Albert in Leo's autopsy report and Tammy at various points throughout the book both call Gordon Chief when no one ever called him that in the show. And obviously what that calls to mind for me is the fact that Daily Planet editor Perry White has, for across multiple media for many years, uh, consistently said, don't call me Chief to Jimmy Olsen, whose full name is James Bartholomew Olsen, meaning he has the same middle name as Dale Cooper, and... The long-running DC comic series Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen was given new life in 1970 when the series began being written and drawn by Jack Kirby. So in light of all that, I think Jerry's walk in the woods in The Return seems hugely more important to me. And I think Jerry, like Dr. Jacoby, is really in the role of the Shakespearean fool who appears to be there just for comic relief but he really is the one who possesses the wisdom that leads us to greater understanding. Yeah, that's great. And I just want to point out that the weed strains that Jerry Horn comes up with are maybe the best part of the entire final dossier. I just, Frost had such a good time naming these things. Whose hands are these? Collateral damage and the center will not hold. So good. So good. Um, and I think proof that uh, Kyle is right, that he's he's secretly he the genius be. behind yeah, this then, whole thing. He's the most important character. Well, and no, who's I ha- was just going to say that like when yeah, Gordon, go you know, says goodbye to Coop and Diane and he comes to who's there to greet him. I think in the dossier says it's the Horn brothers, right? It's Jerry and Ben who are there to greet him. So, you know, yeah, it's kind of right. like the end of The Wizard of Oz. It's great. And, and whose hands are these is particularly beautiful in light of, exactly. I am not your foot. He, he's questioning whose hands they are. His foot's telling him. He, he doesn't have to ask about the foot because the foot's already told him, I'm not your foot. Yeah, and it's frosty in, in a slightly different way, too. Uh, whose hands these are, I think I know. His house wow. is in the village, though. Nice, nice. <laughs> Did this come up before? Are Robert Frost and Mark Frost related? Do we know? Let's just say they are if we're not. Yeah. Yeah, it came up before. I, I think they are not, but it would be great. They both – but I think Mark Frost he comes from a long – Well, 
and uh, if established New England yeah. family, so he's got to be. Like, if, yeah, they got to like be related. Yeah, if, uh, his father Warren Frost had some association with Middlebury College. That college has an association with Robert Frost. Correct. Right. Yeah, that does seem Frosty. pretty coincidental. Yeah, and yeah, Wendy says Frosties. <laughs> Whoa! Can, can that be a callback to a thing if the thing doesn't exist anymore? Are we are oh, we calling wow. back? To- <laughs> you can just run like a phantom track of me, and then yeah, we're gonna play, just play like sound effects or something when wow. I'm supposed to Listen, be talking. I, I think this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like banging noises, like an organ grinder. Uh, look, I. <laughs> I think of this all the time. I have this thought all the time, but especially now, our poor listeners. Our poor listeners. Yes. We put them through so much. Anyway. No. No. (laughs) Pity me, Ken. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. (laughs) This Jerry Horn I'll be the one doing the work. Yes. Uh, Okay. It is. It is. It's 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 fantastic. We should should do a a Jack Kirby episode. Yes. I think Jack Kirby, he foresaw the yes. entire thing in like yeah. some weird comic he wrote in the 70s that no one read. All of Twin Peaks is contained in like one panel on like page 47. Of That's something. right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it is true that Frost seems to enjoy writing for and about Jerry Horn more than just about anybody else. Horn and Jacoby more than anybody else in this book. It, it, he just seems to be gleeful writing about this stuff. Yeah. And but those two chapters, they seem like this sort of like, I don't know, countercultural fantasia, you know, or something like that. They uh-huh. seem like I called like Jacoby, you know, I mean, I mean just lesser extent, Jerry Horn is too, but like Jacoby's this like zealot of like, you know, like the the right. counterculture so yeah 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 and i love dr amp in the return but jerry horn uh in the return and jacoby in the original two seasons are characters that just make me yawn like i just i just wait for their scenes to be over wait so in it's the nice new season have. in the new season the the jerry horn stuff i thought was very was very blah in the original stuff i liked i liked vibrant brie and baguette loving jerry horn but i don't love right. super high out in the woods jerry horn and i didn't love the original flavor jacoby before he was dr amp so it's nice to see those those characters get interesting backstories except for his outfit when he brought sarah palmer to the yeah. double r <laughs> That outfit that he wore is amazing. Oh yeah, he could have played Doctor Who in that outfit. Yes, I really, I really liked yeah. all the Jerry Horn episodes in the new season. They were among my favorites. Uh, the foot stuff I, is great. Me too. I may be yeah. being too harsh. I don't know. The foot stuff is great. Jr., you sound true... tinnier now. Did you change your microphone setup somehow, Jr.? Wouldn't matter to you. I mean, it was, uh, I don't... all all that, all that matters is my microphone. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, you guys have been sounding kind of faded out too. So like, maybe it's not. Not as close, but I just have to assume you're talking to your microphone. Maybe it's a Skype thing. Um, Jerry Horn is a true wandering Odysseus. Yeah, it could, very well could be a Skype thing. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. He yeah. is. He is kind of a very much an Odysseus figure. Yeah. I mean, he's like one of four, probably. Um, yeah, I would recommend to all of our readers that you pick up the Jack Kirby uh, comic Spirit World, which has been re-released. It came out in like 1970, 1971. It's absolutely brilliant, weird as shit uh, stuff uh, that it seems like literally ripped from the mind of, of of Mark Frost and possibly even David Lynch. It's uh, it's really good stuff. Okay, the Double R Diner. Let's move on to the Double R. Kyle, you had some thoughts about the discrepancies here, and 
I think Jeff has some. I was just. Can I just say? So watch out. Watch out. Start. I just want to say this is like probably for me the most negligible uh, chapter in besides the stuff about Annie Blackburn, and we get more about that. She has her own, you know, folder. I guess later on, but this was just. I was just really fascinated that like how much, in a bad way, fascinated how much time Frost spends on like the restaurant critic subplot. You know what I mean? Like yeah, from like right. chapter t- from right. like season two, resolving this thing that no one cared about, you know, at all. And then right. like, you know, the stuff by Annie was interesting, but besides that, I just was like, at this point shocked. Like, I think this is the longest chapter so far in the book. But like, this was the only place for me where it really dragged. Uh, so, yeah, that's all I'd say about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, possibly if, if time is linear on this podcast, unclear. I, mean, I mentioned earlier that, uh, that there, are, there are certain ways in which it seems like Frost is, uh, obsessed with tying up loose ends from the end of season two over doing other things. And that the Ernie Niles restaurant critic stuff is, is a really profoundly good example of that. I agree, Jeff. It's just crazy. Like who, who cares? Who gave a fuck about Ernie Niles? Like nobody. <laughs> right. And yet now, now we have all this stuff, um, about the, Blackburn family history. Um, and it goes to a really interesting place. I, I'm not going to step on, on you, Kyle, because I know you care so much about Annie. Um, but it ends up someplace really, really cool. So I give him credit for that. But it's it's strange. And it does allow Tammy to divert into um, what is maybe the single most off-putting thing about the book for me, where she just lights into um, this Vivian Smythe Lindstrom Blackburn Niles individual who, in a world full of actual profound evil and murder and aliens and such, she finds to be the most loathsome individual on Earth because she continually married for money um and and some other stuff but it's 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 very odd it goes into some odd corners before it gets to someplace productive for sure yeah and i I would agree with all of that and and the only thing and i know we had we had a lot of chronological inconsistencies in the secret history but here we've got um annie being born in 1973 and depending on when her birthday falls, that means that she would be either 15 or 16 years old in 1989 when the first, or excuse me, the second season of Twin, Pe- Twin Peaks takes place. So that means that she had an affair with Dale Cooper when she was under 18. And, and that, again, it later goes on to say when she arrived in Twin Peaks, she was in her early 20s. But again, for all the criticism we give Tammy Preston, She made the dean's list at MIT. She can do simple math here. It's not hard to figure that out. That's something that should have been caught even amid all these chronological inconsistencies. Except you assume that she ever actually got involved with Kyle in this timeline. Tamara could be – there is some indication in this book that – Tamara Preston is operating in multiple timelines, hmm. including a post Laura disappearance timeline, which is yeah. really right. the foundation of well, my objection right. about all that stuff from the beginning. You start mucking Fair about enough. with the timeline yeah. that way and everything just goes to shit. Right. Kyle, right. I know you're with me on that. No, no, I'm totally with you. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, the, clearly. And, and the, the craziest thing is that not only would it mean that Kyle started dating her when she was 15 or 16, it's that before that somehow she ended up being admitted to a nunnery i think they got rules there i don't think you can you know be- become a nun when you're like 12 right right 
I mean, I would think. I think you, 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 don't you have to be yeah. an adult? I mean, she wasn't technically a nun. She was like an aspirant or yeah. something. I, I forget what the what the term is, but it, that's awfully young. I mean, she still has to like finish school and stuff. And let me just By say, the way, can you? I was just going to say in the go ahead, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, Mark Frost did an AMA on Reddit recently, and he people specifically asked him about this discrepancy uh, between, I guess, you know, the age of Annie Blackburn and this timeline. And he attributed it to faulty reporting on the part of Tamara Preston. Uh, and he also said a couple of interesting things came up there that Maddie Ferguson is almost definitely still alive and that Dick Tremaine uh, sells real estate somewhere else in Washington State and once tried to make contact with Wally Brando, who ignored him. How how on earth is Maddie Ferguson still alive? Right, right. Oh, that's that that that, that, that totally no, makes that sense. totally makes sense yeah. that she'd still be alive. Because if, if Leland didn't kill Laura, she wouldn't have come to town. Ugh, that's so, what you mean. Yeah. God, I hate that. But yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, but again, it it's still Yeah, but who who knows about what sort of butterfly effect from the death of Laura Palmer would have resulted in Wally Brando being born. Right. Right. I mean, why is Wally Brando uh, exist, but Maddie Ferguson right. didn't die? I don't believe no, Maddie Ferguson no way really existed really... in the first place. I believe that she's like a, a Laura Tulpa anyway. It's that's a great uh, theory. So I yeah, uh, should should but I do could my you please? Uh, my quick call but back before you do that, Ken? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's uh, I want yeah I want you to do that, but but I just would like to ask Jr. When you're referring to the relationship between Annie and and <laughs> Dale Cooper, could you refer to him by his name on the show, not the actor's name, which happens coincidentally also oh, to be shit. my name and make it sound like I'm having an? Did I say you, Kyle? You said oh, Kyle I, yeah, I think that was more of a slip. Yeah. I, I know how much I know how much of like, an yeah. affection you've got for Annie. Yeah, but I'm 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 not. <laughs> I'm Sorry. not traveling in time asking what year it is and having an affair with 15-year-old Heather Graham. That's not yeah. happening. Please don't put that out there. That JR, was you just, in no, a couple I, of weird not, JR, you just pulled a Margaret Coulson. Yeah. yeah. Did somebody ask about that in the AMA, Jeff? I don't th- – I think someone did, and his response was that that was purposeful, you know, that they did – they made her maiden name Coulson as a tribute to the actress after she passed away. They decided they that, that it's well. Margaret Coulson, Coulson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's an that seems random yeah. as hell. I mean, it's a nice, it's it's a nice. Uh, I mean, I I think it's fine, and I don't think it was. I think it was intentional. It just seems awfully I random. I guess I, d- I didn't think it was intentional at all. I mean, I guess I guess we'll get there. <laughs> I think that there's all sorts no, of assumptions actually, that we're making here, that time is linear, the right. podcast is going to eventually progress to a point where we get to other chapters. Right. All sorts of assumptions right. I should not be making. <laughs> right. Well, we, we, we've started in the middle in terms of what's uh-huh. actually recorded. Uh-huh. Uh, so, Ken, are, are you going to take us down the – Frigid yeah, Yakima sure. River. Uh, so I felt as though Mark Frost was uh, winking at me through time and uh, the paper in my book that he obviously listened to the podcast religiously uh, and is a fan of Ken's Beverage Corner because we talked about Rainier Beer on a previous installment of that uh, beloved series. And uh, I was reminded of the Rainier Beer discussion by the family history of Annie Blackburn. Her adopted father is Roland Blackburn who is described as a Yakima beer distributor with a drinking problem. 
And beer and Yakima together make me think of Rainier, which, as I may have mentioned in a previous Ken's Beverage Corner, uh, announced at one point last year that it would resume production in Washington again after years of brewing in Irwindale, California. And subsequent to that, they announced that they were going to do a beer specific to that location called Pale Mountain Ale. That would be Rainier's first new beer in 20 years, and they advertise that it is, uh, quote, made with made using two-row barley and hops from the Yakima Valley, end quote. So uh, that made me think, of course, of the uh, Yakima River that presumably flows through the Yakima Valley, uh, and uh, ho- and made me hope that that new beer, the uh, Pale Mountain Ale, would avoid the notes of shame, misery, and trauma that I associate with the frigid Yakima River now that I've learned that Roland drove his Cadillac DeVille into it after Vivian caught him molesting or attempting to molest Annie. All of this makes me uh, rethink my commitment to drinking Rainier beer in uh, the wake of its uh, product placement throughout Twin Peaks The Return. Uh, but there you have it. Sometimes uh, these things backfire. Uh, this has been a callback edition of Ken's Beverage Corner. Very nice. But are we sure that that... that- edition of the podcast actually happened or did dale cooper go back in time and make it disappear yeah it's any of these things is a distinct possibility for sure. Kyle mclaughlin did that not dale cooper well especially right, exactly right, right especially because right Blake after Kyle. right right after they encounter each other in the woods right after coop goes back in time to the moment before uh laura's death and talks to her in the woods she runs off to meet a group of uh you know uh her future killers one of whom is swinging a rainier beer so it's right. it's it's placed right in the moment of my great dismay with the fucking around with the time stream I'm just going to say, Ken. It sounds like you're as you're as angry at Rainier Beer as as uh, Tammy Preston is at uh, Vivian Smith Lindstrom Blackburn Niles. I mean, nobody's as angry at anything as uh, Tammy is at that character, and and this is where it really uh, rears its head. But it's and, and I've I've talked about it, and, and we'll continue to talk about it in other places. But this version of Tammy Preston is a very odd and unappealing kind of person who saves her most harsh judgment for like slut shaming young models and uh, Lana budding Milford and anybody who seems to sort of marry strategically. So the most scathing stuff in the entire book is about this Vivian Blackburn person. And I, I'm not arguing she's a good person. She seems like a sort of a venal striver and a poor mother and various other things. But I got the sense just from the unadorned details of her biography that she was tremendously sad, not in the sort of, you know, adorable doe-eyed way that Annie was sad, maybe, but but a f- person worthy of pity that, you know, she was maybe suffering from some type of borderline personality disorder, and she was desperate for love and attention, and uh, maybe a little too acutely aware of the limited options that life presented for her. So she kept marrying people in an effort to find some kind of, uh, you know, solace. And uh, maybe some of it was cynical, and maybe some of it was strategic, and maybe she's a bad person. Like, she sucks, for sure. She definitely sucks. But this is a world that has given us Bob, and a world that's given us Leo Johnson and Mr. C and fucking Richard Horn. Like, there are legit evil people out there. And somehow, like, Vivian is the reason why Tammy's lamenting, like, some people are simply born bad. (laughs) Woe betide all those who encounter them along the way. Like, that's a crazy thing for her to think about this person versus all the real evil that we've seen, to me. 
And I think it's related to to the cruelty that she shows to some of these other young women and people who, you know, seem to be seducing men for fun and profit. But it's a it's it's icky to me. It it, it leaves an icky taste in my mouth. So you're saying in the in the category of people who are born bad, you you think that that Vivian is is somehow less born bad than say Bob or Judy? Yeah, I mean, I guess those are extra dimensional beings or whatever, but certainly less well, born bad than like Richard Horn. Like, right, Rich, right. Richard Horn had limited options and presumably a bad upbringing, though we don't really get the details of it. And at every right. single place in his life, he chose to be just absolutely as shitty as possible. We learn from uh-huh. the from the final dossier here that he his grandmother had some role in raising him. That's sort of the only limited information we get about his background. And so, of course, the one scene we get of them is him absolutely brutalizing her. Right. You know, right. it's – yeah. So – the fact that that just gets glossed over by by this Tammy in favor of many many pages about um, Vivian and a crisis of conscience that it elicits in Tamara about why are people this way? Why is she the worst? Like she right. she foregrounds it by saying it starts bad and gets worse. So I was expecting something much more salacious than these this string of marriages and and neglect of of children. You know, I, I thought right. we'd get something really horrendous given the standards of this show. Okay. Um. Annie Blackburn, she's next. This folder is just like a like a general introduction so, to the idea of Annie Blackburn. Her story yeah, comes right. later, right, right? Exactly. Yeah, I was gonna say we should we should right, try to get to Kyle's reaction to the really cool Annie stuff, but the really cool Annie stuff is like three folders later in back in Twin Peaks or whatever the right. fuck. Right. Not in the one labeled Annie Blackburn, where God you would forbid. expect to find the information about Annie Blackburn. Yeah. This for me, you guys won't give. You know. Um, Tamara Preston credit for being some sort of modernist exper- experimentalist here with how she's doing these folders. You guys just think she's incompetent and she just has It's her filing system. A very yeah, complex she's not writing non- poetry. She has a very complex nonlinear system of under- of understanding narrative. And this is how Blue Rose Task Force dossiers are compiled. Sorry. I- I just I just followed Doug Milford's filing system in the secret history a lot more than I follow hers. That's all. We did get here at the beginning. It, it comes up twice, but we did get explicitly, you know, kind of one of the things that we talked about, especially in the light of uh, episode 18, like Coop's, they, they say it here, you know, his white knight syndrome, his irresistible urge to rescue every damsel in distress he came across. Right. And uh, I thought that was interesting that that sort of, I was surprised that it was that, you know, straightforward and it spelled out that explicitly in this narrative, you know, that thing that we had talked about, how to read his decision to alter the timeline, try to save Laura, you know, uh, go back in time and, you know, whatever happens at the end of episode 18 in the light of that. But yeah, I thought that was interesting as well as JR, are you going to talk about the, you know, my, my life, my tapes or the autobiography of Dale Cooper? There's a lot of references to his life here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that we can slide over to Wyndham Earl at this point and, uh, and talk about that. That this, the point was actually raised by Ken because he said, isn't the My Life, My Tapes account of the Caroline Earl stuff different? And, and heck yeah, it's very different. I mean, there's some basic principles are the same that Kyle worked for, for, for Earl. Kyle fell in love with Caroline. Earl wanted him to fall in love with Caroline. And Earl killed Caroline and almost killed uh, Coop. But, you know, it's a very different story in the book. Uh, in the book, uh, and they just, the, the, in, in 
the final dossier, Tammy talks about Kyle and Caroline sort of hooking up uh, and having their first encounter where they, you know, fell in love at sight at some, I think, what did it, what did it say? I got to pull it up. While you're doing that, I just want to point out, you're doing it again. You keep calling <laughs> Dale Kyle. <laughs> Fuck, I'm sorry. It's okay. I Fuck. just feel like. <laughs> I, I don't, I really don't oh, mean to. Fine. I, I got to break no, that it's habit. Fine. It's fine. It's just. A, no, it's not a I good just, habit. I man. feel like I may, in fact, be going through multiple timelines, and in one of them, I may actually be a character in Twin Peaks. And you got to watch cool. out. You got to watch out, Kyle, because you're just going to wake up tomorrow in a jail cell, and you're going to be Balthazar Getty, and it's going to be oh a nightmare. Exactly. Oh, my God. Exactly. Well, as long as you don't wake up before 11 a.m., that's a bad time right. to be Balthazar Getty. <laughs> right. 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 All right. So, so, so I'm going to start over. Uh, and and I'm gonna say yes. Uh, Ken wondered uh, regarding you know Wyndham Earl and the stuff in my life, my tapes. It's maybe relevant here. Ken noted that in my life, my tapes, the story of Caroline Earl uh, looks a lot different than how it's portrayed here, and that is definitely the case. Um, you know, I also note that we were told by Major Briggs that that Earl was basically drummed out of the Air Force and his role in Project Blue Book. It's entirely unclear what happened between his dismissal from the Blue Book, uh, his assignment to the Watergate hearing, uh, where he met his wife, Caroline, uh, and then him becoming the head of the Philadelphia office, uh, although apparently Earl and Caroline lived in Pittsburgh. So what's, what's interesting here is that in My Life, My Tapes, it's a very different story or a much more disturbing story here. Uh, what, what happened is after Wyndham Earl becomes Cooper's supervisor and, and mentor, Earl is supposedly kidnapped uh, and disappears for three days. Uh, and in the meantime, several mob, small time mob figures show up being uh, uh, beaten and killed their hands cut off, that sort of thing. Uh, and then Wyndham Earl reappears, you know, having no memory at all of, of what happened to him. And in sometime after that, uh, C- Cooper is introduced to Caroline. He doesn't really talk about falling in love with her until much later in the story. Um, what subsequently happens is, uh, well, it's actually, there's, there's some interesting little points. I'm, I'm going to spoil the book cause it's kind of hard to find, I guess for people. He he and Earl play chess every day, and every single day, Coop loses. And finally, he's, Coop is told that he has to go on a vacation because he's acquired too much vacation time. And so he ends up going to uh, an old man in the Caribbean who apparently taught Wyndham everything he knows about chess. And when he goes to that man's uh, shack, he says – there is death in your face. I can teach you nothing. <laughs> and he, Coop asked him how he knew this. And the, and the guy just says, uh, that is the wrong question. And he disappears. You know, he, he commits suicide. And then Coop gets this feeling that something terrible has happened. Uh, and I forgot to mention, there's actually a really neat, uh, interesting piece where he says, uh, before this happens, but after he starts working with Wyndham, Diane, I've just woken from a dream that I fear is far more than random synapses discharging electrodes into my subconscious. In it, a man with no legs is sitting across from me in a green chair. 
For a moment, he says nothing, then begins to laugh and tells me that I cannot run, that it is right behind me and is sure to kill. Then I woke to the sound of screaming. The question then is, what is it and how do I stop it? Um, you know, I think that the demon is always at Cooper's back and always has been from from his earliest you know years that we see in this book. And in terms of his fatal flaw, that certainly emerges here in terms of what subsequently happens with uh, with Windermore's wife, Caroline. Wyndham, after he uh, returns from his own abduction that he remembers nothing about, uh, his wife, Caroline, is kidnapped while Coop is in the Caribbean. And, and she's gone, missing for a long time. Uh, and then they, when they finally find her, um, she's a prostitute addicted to heroin or some other drug, maybe not heroin. And there's a sort of agonizing detail of putting her into a safe house where Coop is watching over her and helping her recover. And so we really have a lot of tro- a lot of the same tropes we've seen here before. A, a fallen woman who uh, he, Coop is nursing and, and trying to save. And it is in that context, that specific context, when he's taking care of Caroline after her abduction, that he does fall in love with her. Uh, and Wyndham, and you know, there's this process of Caroline eventually remembering that it was Wyndham who, abdu- in, in fact, abducted her, uh, while Wyndham is off trying to go find the killer, and you know, not leaving the safe house and disappearing himself for some time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, is is the story that Christus tells in the final dossier basically the same? Sort of, but there's some like crucial details that are missing. And, you know, I don't know, that could be because that these particular tapes that we have in the book were destroyed or withheld from her. Um, so it's not, you know, crazy that her, her account is, you know, basically the same and, and certainly the same in as much as this death, you know, truly, truly affected Dale. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, that, that's that's the story of, of Wyndham Earl and Caroline from uh the autobiography of FBI, FBI special agent Dale Cooper, yeah. my life, my tapes, which I'd highly recommend to whoever can and dig. I was going to say, eBay. yeah, the, the, I guess relationship of this book, the dossier to, I guess the autobiography of Dale Cooper, as well as the sort of cassette tape release, you know, my life, my tapes, which sort of overlap, but had different material in them as well. Um, is interesting because I think in the Annie Blackburn chapter, she kind of, when she's discussing Cooper's white knight tendencies, she talks a bit about his relationship with his mother, you know, as being like the source of that. And that seems fairly strict, you know, fairly closely based on, I think what we find out about Cooper's mother from the autobiography. But then we have this fascinating disclaimer in page 61 in the final dossier, which says elements of this narrative may be familiar to you from a review of Cooper's own words on the subject culled from his daily tapes to Diane or rather from Diane's transcripts of the tapes. After an independent survey of all the available facts, I have concluded that the tapes transcripts had been heavily redacted and modified. It's safe to say that in quotation marks, Diane's motivations for doing so at this point are well known to us and cannot be considered a consistently reliable source. And so that seems to me to be implying that the Diane Tulpa you know, modified, redacted those tapes for an unknown reason. And then, you know, and it also, I guess, casts light on the, is it canonicity of those uh, documents, which were interestingly written by uh, Scott Frost, I think, Mark Frost's brother. So, yeah, I thought that was really fascinating how, you know, he both 
both pulled from them in some ways. And as you said, a lot of the larger, you know, kind of details of the Caroline Windemarole, you know, Cooper triangle are the same, but then there are those crucial differences. But this idea of both those things as being modified by the Diane Tulpa, I thought was really interesting. But wait, that just doesn't make any sense because the Diane Tulpa. Right. I, so I guess it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's clearly post these d- Doppel Cooper. Um, so, but again, that's that's another twist in the timeline. And, and Jr. Of course, I haven't read My Life, My Tapes in a long time, but it's interesting hearing that. I mean, you've got the description of Caroline Earl that is almost a direct uh, uh, repetition, or I guess a prequel to what happened to Audrey Horn in right. season two of Twin right. Peaks. You've got the the exactly. reference to the mob figures having their hands cut off. Um, a couple of you know in a book that that we're getting a call back to a couple of chapters after Jerry Horn is naming his strains of marijuana whose hands are these and we've got yeah. the the juxtaposition of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia Pittsburgh where Mark Frost went to school at Carnegie Mellon Philadelphia where David Lynch went to art school and by all accounts everything from a racer head on forward uh, was heavily influenced by that particular period of his life so it's it's just it's interesting to see the backstory for the creators and the backstory for the characters all kind of tying in on the one hand it's not really canonical if you believe a different timeline but on the other hand it is being tied back in with with callbacks that you've got to have read them both to get the juxtaposition between them. So there's a lot going on here. Yeah, Mark- I like how much the Frost is trying to interact with these other sources here instead of just like brushing them aside. Even if it doesn't work timing wise, I think it's cool that it's he's dropping hints that like, oh, you might have read this stuff. Um, I, I think that kind of intertextualism is cool for the fans. Um, and I definitely think it's a callback to us. I think it's more proof that he's uh, listened to our podcast that he mentions uh, Cooper's white knight tendencies. Um, that's that's definitely us. Um, but I want to talk about what we were just saying about uh, the repetition of the heroin and prostitution plot lines as indicative of how Mark Frost and maybe Scott Frost view sexuality again and how they view sex work. Like, what would what would drive somebody to uh, to get into sex work? Well, they were they were bamboozled into it. Well, they were they were tricked into it. They were coerced into it. They were addicted to heroin against their will. Twice in Dale Cooper's life, people were like addicted to heroin against their will, and that's how they ended up being sex workers. It's a it's a very narrow conception of uh, of what leads people into that, and I think it has to do with their uh, or at least frost squeamishness about female sexuality i'm just looking at the beginning of the annie blackburn uh chapter uh file and of course the thing titled annie blackburn is a little more than one page long and it's mostly about Wyndham Earl. so great job with the filing system uh here folks but the the sentence that i'm looking at we know now that caroline earl suffered such extreme mental and emotional distress during the course of her marriage that her reaching out to cooper as she did seems likely to have been a cry for help more than an attempt to seduce as though to Frost, talking here as, as Tammy Preston, an attempt to seduce would be this horrible, unforgivable crime. That Caroline Earl cannot be a character of sympathy for us unless she's doing something other than attempting to seduce. It's, the attempt to seduce is like the most unforgivable of all crimes, as, as seen in the you know, Vivian stuff. 
Oh, I think that's all Tammy. I think Tammy has very Victorian sensibilities. Victorian lizard people sensibilities. <laughs> can can I ask one more Caroline question to wrap up the this stuff? Um, since we're on Wyndham Earl, uh, Kyle, uh, do you agree with me that Caroline can be seen as a woman in refrigerator? Oh yeah, completely. Because I mean, we we don't we don't meet her in any sense until after she's dead, and her relevance is all about certainly to Cooper is all about her dying. Right. It's she's there to motivate her death is there and her character is there right. so that her death can motivate the actions of the protagonist. Okay. Right, which is the definition of women in refrigerators. I think that's right. Okay. That's all. Yeah, I mean it's true that this the, the autobiography is basically a story of a series of women that Dale uh is sexually attracted to. Um, view, he views them as uh, it wants to help them uh, despite their unfortunate conditions, and then they subsequently uh, die. In, in or light of walk in out light of him. Ken's point, That's what <laughs> then do we make of Jade, who appears to be a perfectly well-adjusted person? We see her interacting with the guy at the car detailing shop as just a human being with a job like anybody else and and no one seems to be treating her like she's some sort of damaged goods she doesn't behave Mm. in any way Uh, there's no indication that she has any sort of uh, substance abuse problem i mean she seems very much in control of her own situation when we meet her uh with the original dougie um she seems very much although she's being objectified visually she seems very much narrow we've had our transaction i've got my money i'm now gonna go get in the shower and when he then has announcing to him hey look we're, we're done you you can't you can't come in this room now because we're from from all of these other women in the lynch frost canon yeah that's a great point i give lynch credit for that i think that that's an example of lynch being interested in the interiority of a character like that or like candy i mean candy by name and appearance is there to be eye candy and like Lynch can't stop fixating on what is going on with her <laughs> um, and uh, and and giving her this sort of um, uh, really subtle character development in the background of a whole bunch of these scenes like we've talked about this on previous episodes of the pod but she has her own following right. candy my my right. wife's fantasy football team this year is named after candy <laughs> because she loves that character right um so uh, I, I think that's just Lynch fixing on some of these people who were written as um, placeholders to a certain extent in the script and giving them a chance to, to to explore their interior life a little bit more. But I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm generalizing based on the text I have in front of me about Frost and sexuality. So it's easy for me to just say, well, that's the other creator. But we don't really know. We don't we don't know what the process is. It's a great point. Let Kyle. me let me also just say that I got in the mail today the new number four the epi- uh issue of the blue rose magazine kind of the continuation uh of wrapped in plastic the famous Uh. fanzine uh and candy is on the cover of it there's an extensive interview with amy shields the irish actress who plays candy i gotta order that for adrian now that's great it's great okay that concludes episode 21 of wrapped in podcast tune in soon for episode 22 where we'll continue to talk about mark frost's the final dossier.